0: It's where you build your legacy, where traditions are started, seeds are planted, meals are shared, and stories are told. We are Chris and Natalie Carpenter, owners of Story Real Estate, and our team of top agents helps people find homes in Moscow, Idaho, and around the country. Have you thought about a move? Contact us to get connected with a top agent who shares your values and puts your family first or reach out to us about our Moscow Relocation Guide. Wherever you're looking to go, we can help you find home. Call us at Story Real Estate or visit us at storyrealestate.com and start building your legacy. The the talk title that Gabe gave me is Correcting the Civic Wobble. Um, And um, I I don't know if this is a, a subtitle or not, but a biblical case for the three spheres. So what I want to cover in this talk uh, this afternoon is really just an overview of what you might call basic um, Hyperion sphere sovereignty. Um, And ultimately, um, this is grounded in the notion, the basic Christian confession, that Jesus is Lord. So all Christians everywhere, if you are a true Christian, um, the most basic confession of faith, the most basic profession of faith is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Christians say that, and if you're, in, I mean, if you're in a really good Baptist church, they say amen, I hear. Um, but um, but, they, but and everybody says, yes, amen, Jesus is Lord, that's right, right on. And, um, but we really need to stop, and we need to slow down, and we need to underline, and we need to unpack. The expanded version of that profession of faith, of course, is Jesus is Lord of Lords, and Jesus is King of Kings. That would be the, there you go, that, there, but that would be the expanded version of that basic confession of faith. Jesus is Lord, meaning he is Lord of all the lords, he is king of all the kings, um, all authority and power comes from him. That's that's what we mean. All authority and power comes from Jesus, And you could, you could, again, continue to expand that. Lords and kings would, be the, would have been the common uh, language for those who had authority and power in the ancient world. But he is president of all the presidents. He is uh, Supreme Court justice of all the Supreme Court justices, and, and so on. He's mayor of all the mayors. He is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And, or, as Romans 13.1 puts it, there's no power except from God. There's no authority except that which comes from God. And and so and, and the question broadly then is whether God delegates this power haphazardly or with precision. Does God give his authority and power haphazardly? Uh, does he just give it sort of carte blanche, a blank check to the world and say, good luck, see you at the end? Um, or... Does he uh, assign his authority and power with careful precision? Uh, are, Are the ministers of his authority freewheeling, or are they men under orders? Are those people who have been given authority from Jesus, have they just been given blank checks, good luck, have fun, do what you want, or are they men under orders, messengers of the high king? And, and, the, and, and my thesis here and the broad thesis of uh, the Reformation tradition um, has been um, the latter, that God does not merely say, here's a blank check, good luck, have fun, uh, but rather uh, God is jealous of those who represent him and all of those who have authority and power from him represent him because there's no power except that which comes from God himself. Um, and, so, um, and so there's a, 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 a long uh, and extended biblical case to be made for that part um, that I'm not going to go into in great detail other than to unpack um, basically um, these um, three broad spheres of authority that we have um, positively given in Scripture. One other thought, uh, one other point in just an introduction to this. Um, many of you will be familiar with Lord Acton's Um, famous quip that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, famously pictured that basic point um, in his great work, The Lord of the Rings, with the ring. Um, No no one really could be trusted with the ring, and in the end, even the hobbits, even the faithful, courageous hobbits couldn't, it even consumed them as stout-hearted as they were. No one could be trusted with that kind of power. Nobody could be trusted with carte blanche power. Nobody can be trusted with it because it corrupts. The ring had to be destroyed. That kind of power must be destroyed. That's an entirely Christian instinct. Only God can be trusted with absolute authority. Only God himself can be trusted with, um, with that kind of absolute um, carte blanche Uh, authority. Every attempt for man to wield that kind of authority and power is corrupting. So all authority and power has been given to Jesus Christ. This is Matthew 28. And note there, this is one of those, this is uh, an important distinction to be made. Um, Jesus Christ is the only man who who can handle this. He's the only one that can handle it because he is God in flesh. No, no other human uh, being, no other human uh, institution, can be trusted with it. Uh, therefore, any authority and power that exists in this world comes from Him. All human authority and power is therefore derived and delegated. It's derived and delegated. It doesn't just. It doesn't just come to them. They don't make it up. It comes from. Jesus, and it is therefore limited by him. It is limited by him. They have authority to do what he wants them to do, and no more. So in this talk, I'm making the biblical case for the three basic spheres of human government that, broadly speaking, Jesus Christ has instituted three governments among men, the, the, um, the family, the church, and the state. But we really must begin with the foundational form of government, self-government. So I'm sneaking in a fourth, but really it's it's a sort of foundational uh, point that just really needs to be made before we get there. Self-government was instituted in the Garden of Eden in the Dominion Mandate. The Dominion Mandate, remember, was that God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This same command is given to the government of the family, and we're going to get to that just momentarily. But, not to put too fine a point on it, families and all governments are made up of individuals. right? And all governments depend for their faithfulness on the self-government of individuals. Can't make an omelet without eggs. Right? That's what... Every institution is made up of, it's made up of people, and the institution is only so good as the individual people that make it up. Self-government is where all liberty and freedom begins. Self-government is where all liberty and freedom begins. Liberty, biblically speaking, is the power to pursue virtue and fruitfulness. Liberty is the power to pursue virtue. Virtue and fruitfulness. The power to fulfill the dominion mandate, in other words. That's what liberty is. And notice then that liberty is actually a kind of power. Liberty is itself actually a kind of authority. It is the authority to rule your own life and property, maximizing its productivity and blessing. That's liberty. Liberty is the authority to rule your own life beginning with your body, your, your heart, your passions, your mind, your faculties, your gifts, and then the, prop, the property that God has given you to rule all of that, the authority to rule all of that, to maximize your, uh, your blessing in this world, to maximize your productivity and blessing on this world. And you have been given this authority and power directly from your Maker, You're given this authority, this power, directly from your maker. There's no intermediary. You got it by virtue of being made. You were created in the image of God, in other words. And that image bears with it the authority to rule your body, your life, your property well. To maximize its productivity and blessing for the world. These are what the founders of our country called the foundational unalienable rights. They spoke of unalienable rights that came directly from the maker, that came directly from our creator. These are, in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, as Christians, uh, we, we've gotten understandably more and more nervous maybe about that third one, life and liberty, and look what they did with all that happiness. It's been distorted into a, basically a pagan he- hedonism, right? It's been it's been redefined, and so liberty with it has been redefined, basically to do whatever makes me feel happy, and that and that distortion has run roughshod then over life and liberty. Pursuit of happiness is, you know, we think is on the, you know, it's, it's on the bender, and it's just it's it's running roughshod over all these other things. Um, stop it! But. Um, Actually, in its original context, uh, we ought to give at least, even if we think, in hindsight, maybe we should have said it better, which is a per- perfectly reasonable thing to think. Um, even if we, if we think we ought to have, have said it better, if you look back, um, that, even that notion, the pursuit of happiness, was far more influenced by Christian sensibilities than you might initially think. Remember, what's the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? And that, the famous, the answer that the, that the Westminster Divines gave was that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's a really wonderful answer. What is the chief end? What is man for? What is the highest good that we are here on planet Earth? What is that? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? The pursuit of happiness and understood biblically is learning to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's actually no higher happiness for man, but to glorify God—that is our highest happiness, uh, and and that is and, it is and to find our lives in Him is to is to enjoy Him and His goodness and His glory forever. So, again, originally there really was a a um, a more Christian sensibility even to that notion of pursuing happiness. And in pursuing that happiness in God is life and liberty. The three did go together. Now, self-government was overthrown in the fall of man, where Adam used his authority and power to usurp God's command. And so Adam and all his descendants became enslaved to sin and selfishness. Not only, not now, only the Spirit of God can regenerate a person and give them true liberty. Only the Spirit of God can regenerate a person and give them true liberty. Because of the fall, there is no true liberty apart from Christ. There is no true liberty apart from the regeneration of a man by the Holy Spirit. Fallen men certainly experience glimpses of the old liberty as the image of God still flashes momentarily in them, but it is overwhelmed by enslavement to the world, the flesh and the devil. This is the world we live in. And so there's no liberty apart from Christ, and there's no freedom apart from the Spirit of God. Where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. But there isn't liberty where the Spirit of God is not. There isn't going to be liberty where the Spirit of God is being grieved over and over again. This is why John Adams actually famously said, He says, "Um, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He says, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution As a whale goes through a net, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. It's the last sentence that usually gets the most airplay. Um, Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. But I, I thought those sentences just before it was pretty striking. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Uh, we, that's not what our constitution was framed to do. Our government can't, um, cannot give self-government. It, it cannot bridle um, human passions. It, it cannot. It's completely incapable of contending with them. And and you know you just turn on CNN, right? Ta-da, he was right. That's what we're living in. That's what we're living in. So um, the the founders of our our country, and John Adams in particular, said basically the foundational thing is going to be regeneration by the Spirit of God. The the foundational thing is going to be self-government. So we must insist that no government, whether we're talking about family, church, or state, may last long apart from gospel transformation of the hearts of individuals. None of these governments will flourish. None of these governments will be under the blessing of, co- of God apart from gospel transformation of the hearts of individuals. If men and women are not born again, if the Spirit does not fill them and grant them the gift of self-control, it's, one of, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is we ought to just, you should start saying to yourself, self-government. Right? Temperance, the ability to rule yourself well to rule your passions well, to rule your appetites well, to rule over and, and kill your sin. That, that, that's where, the, that's where the, the fight begins, tyranny or freedom. Tyranny or freedom begins in the human heart. This is where it must all begin. If we do not have that, then whatever moralism or humanistic wisdom they may seem to possess will quickly be revealed for the slavery and tyranny that it is. There is no other freedom except for the freedom of Christ, because there's no other freedom except under the loving law of God, the holy, gracious law of God. And no man can keep the law of God apart from the Spirit of God. Good, Good luck with that. So, on to the family government. So we begin with individuals. Apart from the Spirit of God, apart from regeneration, apart from a new heart, apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, guiding, guarding, and driving individuals forward, these governments will not work. But once you have a collection of people that have been called by the gospel, they've repented, they've been baptized, they've come in, they love the Lord, and they say, now what do we do? Well, we have at least three areas where God commands us to get to work. The first is family government. versus first is family government. While the dominion mandate was given to Adam alone initially, um, there, and, and therefore we may say that it is properly given to all human beings by virtue of them bearing the image of God, which we touched on there initially, its full accomplishment was quickly revealed to be impossible apart from other people. Not good for Adam to be alone. And specifically, it wouldn't be possible apart from marriage and family. The need for Adam to bear children, he needed to find uh, a wife. Adam needed a helper suited to him, and so God made Eve. God established the government of the family, beginning with the first marriage. I want to make a really brief um, side note, um, uh, run off the trail for just a second. It's, it is connected, though. While there are rare exceptions, we really must reject the modern confusion that teaches that singleness and marriage are two equal options that Christians might choose. We must reject it. It's, it's becoming more and more common to say, well, you know, just, well, what do you want to do? Pick one. No, no, not at all. God made people for marriage and family. He, he, he's, he's, and, he, and, uh, and we should think of and see singleness... In general, as a result of the fall, a burden, a hardship, a cross to bear, apart from very unusual providential circumstances where God makes singleness his clear assignment. So we can affirm that God makes the occasional, all right, that's your job. This is what you're doing and no marriage for you. Okay, fine. But that, doesn't, that exceptional situation doesn't take away at all the ordinary assignment that we are to expect to marry and bear children. We ought, we ought to think that that's the ordinary, that's the norm. That's what we're made for, that's the goal. We serve the God who is in the process of undoing the curse, and therefore we serve the God who routinely puts the solitary in families. Psalm 68 verse 6. That's part of how God is saving the world. He's putting the lonely in families, and often by marriage, sometimes by adoption, sometimes by covenant community, certainly. But nevertheless, we ought not to give up that ground. The assignment given to the family is the jurisdiction of health, welfare, and education. The assignment given to the family is overseeing health, welfare, and education. We see this again in the dominion mandate. Since the tasks of being fruitful and multiplying require basic sustenance, as well as education and progress over generations. Stop and think for a second. How are we going to be fruitful and multiply? Well, that includes things like eating. Staying relatively healthy. Taking care of little babies. Teaching your children how to take care of themselves, teaching them to, to grow up and marry and take care of their little ones. So health, welfare, and education are already included in be fruitful and multiply. fill the earth and subdue it. How are you going to do that? As was remembering uh, some of the, um, if you've read, read some of the ancient um, historical records of uh, like Herodotus um, recording the, uh, Greco-Persian wars and, and this sort of thing, and um, the, they'll sometimes record just you know, the, the sheer numbers of soldiers, um, but what is sometimes missed is how massive the support teams were for the soldiers. And, and I, I don't have the, the numbers at, at, at my fingertips, and maybe some of you know them, and you can come up and tell me about it afterwards. But you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes like 10x, the number of support personnel you need for fighters or 20x or 50x so you have these are soldiers but then you need to have the butchers the bakers the candlestick makers the medics the doctors the nurses the people that all that support you can't just have soldiers you have to keep them alive you have to feed them you have to care for them and 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 so you know a, a military base is is a little city isn't it it's it's, it's a, it's a large city, compared to some small cities in America. Uh, so as you think about, okay, how am I going to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it? Well, you need to think about all the things that go into that. It, it, it's, um, you know, ask your wife. I, you know, I talked to my wife recently about taking trips and things like that. And it was like, well, it takes me about 15 minutes to pack. And I'm ready to go. And she looks at me and she's like, yeah, let me talk to you about that. So I've got the kids, and then I've got to pack for the kids, and then I've got to make sure that the house is taken care of and the pets are fed and they don't die. And then I've got to find a substitute teacher, and I've got to find people that are going to step in. Mean, like, the support role, I mean, there, there's a lot of support that goes into, oh, yeah, we, <laughs> it reminds you just how amazing your wife is. Okay, But, that, but that's, that's what we're talking about. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That doesn't just happen. That, that means that you have, been, you have been given the task of bringing lives into the world, but this means food, this means clothing, this means shelter, this means protection from the elements, this means protection from enemies, this means protection from wild animals. Right? And then when something goes wrong, fixing it. When someone gets hurt, helping them, making decisions, what's going to be the best for your children in this situation? There's all kinds of details that goes Into it. The tasks of being fruitful and multiplying require basic sustenance and safety, as well as education and progress over generations. And so there's your health, there's your welfare, there's your education. This is also reiterated in the command for parents to teach their children to love God and keep His commandments, both in the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 6, and in the New Covenant, Ephesians 6. Related, In Ephesians 5 and 6, God requires husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. Which, incidentally, I mean, just think very practically. Sometimes you read that and and you've you've still got Jesus in the church, and so you go all spiritual as my own body. Like, yeah, family devotions and reading scripture together. Great. Good. Do that. But you know what else you do with your own body? You feed it. You put clothes on it. You put the heat on. You turn the AC on you you have you have shelter you have a roof over your head you have a bed to sleep in you're to love your wife as your own body there's a lot of care that goes into that and this is the assignment that God has given a husband for his wife health welfare is included there clearly basic nutrition and the rest in fact, he says, love your own body because no one, in fact, no, one, no man um, hates his own body but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Again, this is again in Ephesians, Ephesians 5. He says, no man hates his own body but nourishes and cherishes his own body. Right? You naturally nourish and cherish your own body, right? Paul says. And literally, the words there for nourish and cherish mean feed and keep warm. No man hates his own body Every man feeds his own body. Every man provides food for himself. Every man keeps his body warm. So just as a man feeds and clothes himself, he must likewise feed and clothe his wife, as well as put a roof over her head and pay the heating bill. Likewise, just a few verses down, fathers are required to do the same for their children. It says uh, um, uh, that fathers are to bring up and the word there for bring up is actually the same word or a similar um, a root, a related word to nourish back in chapter 5. Bring up, nourish, feed them what? Feed them with the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord or the culture and counsel of the Lord Jesus. So this includes the physical, emotional, and spiritual training and education that is required for children to grow up, to carry on the torch, of Christian dominion to the next generation. All the physical and spiritual sustenance, all the spiritual, emotional, physical training and education that's required for children to love Jesus and to grow up carrying on the torch of Christian dominion to the next generation. But notice it's bigger than just is Jesus in their heart. Yeah, that's that's yeah, sure, that's number one. Do they love Jesus? But also included in this is the ability to provide food, to provide provision, to have a a house over the head of their children, to bring them up with the ability to carry this task on. In 1 Timothy 5, God requires that the government of the family be the first line of, of defense for widows. 1 Timothy 5, God requires the government of the family to be the first line of defense for widows. And by extension, we can argue this would include all those who might need ongoing welfare support. So The ordinary care begins with the family. So think of orphans, think of the disabled, think of the elderly. And, and, and Paul says there in 1 Timothy 5 um, that a believer who doesn't provide for his own, and there he's talking about a widow, and, and in context he says basically any relative. So it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, the one that's you know, your own mom who's widowed, although it would include that. But he says see if there's any family member, a related family member, because he says um, that a, a believer who doesn't care for his own is worse than an unbeliever, is worse than an infidel, and is denied the faith. So so notice, notice how directly Paul ties this. He says that basically, on the one hand, even pagans know that the first line of defense for the family is the family. Welfare and health care decisions and provision and protection of those who are vulnerable and needy. He says even pagans know better than that. But then secondarily, he says the gospel's at stake. He says, "If you're if you're denying this, if you're not caring for, it, if the family government doesn't see its task as serious, he says that it's denying the faith." He's, you know, that's the stakes are high for the government of the family to see its task as the health, welfare, and education of its own. The Bible says the faith is at stake here. it, it, it says it's saying that here. The gospel is on display. Jesus also explicitly taught that the fifth commandment meant that children must care for their parents in their old age. Jesus explicitly teaches this in Mark 7 and elsewhere. Remember that place where he says, you use the commandments of men to set aside the traditions of men to set aside the commandments of God. He's going after them, and he says, "Um, you say that whatever um, you give as a Corban, Corban is, is a, just a transliteration of a Hebrew word that just means gift at the altar. You say that whatever he gives as Corbin, he designates as a gift of the altar. He, no, he now no longer has that much. It's like a, you know, he says, you've turned it into a tax break that says you don't have to use that to care for your parents. Whatever I would have given to you, mom and dad, to take care of you in your old age, sorry, went to the building fund. Jesus is pretty mad. He says, you're you're using the traditions of men to walk roughshod over the clear commandment of God, which was honor your father and mother. Fifth commandment. So Jesus is teaching that the fifth commandment means that children ought to plan to care for their parents in old age. That's, That's the command. That's what the fifth commandment says. And in that day, the church, the temple, was encroaching on that responsibility and just sort of, letting people off the hook we need to think long and hard what does this mean then about social security when the government says we'll take care of your parents when they're old say, oh okay well they just take it out of my check i know right so what happens when you've been robbed and you're supposed to you know you have a job Jesus says he hates the traditions of men that run roughshod over the commandments of God. So, the family is the first line of defense, and the church, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, may only take on the financial support of a widow under very specific circumstances. Here, there is no mention of Caesar taking care of widows. Part of what has also been lost over the last century or more is the power of the family. What has been lost over the last century or more is the power of the family, particularly through the gift of an inheritance. Proverbs says in a a couple of different places that a godly man, a wise man, leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's what a wise man does. That's what a godly man does. He leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Massive inheritance taxes and property taxes alongside government education, government welfare, government social security programs, have been uh, discouraging families now for several generations from accumulating wealth over generations. And this in turn has had a very deleterious effect on familial authority, power, and loyalty. And I don't think we really have much of an idea of what this has done to us. The nature of family loyalty has been so stripped away. It's it's a almost entirely Gnostic loyalty now. Um, I mean, it's a very rare instance where you have multiple generations on the same property. It's more and more rare that you have multiple generations in the same business. Maybe one, maybe two generations. I mean, that's like unheard of. Oh, this is your grandpa's business? Wow, you're a unicorn, right? That's amazing. And even then, it's, pretty, it's like second, third, and then it's kind of gone. It's very, very rare to be beyond that, but much less the property, much less a massive inheritance. In the ordinary course of things, God intends for the family to be a pretty significant player in the public square. And what would happen is over generations, if you're not getting taxed to kingdom come and you're not having your inheritance to, um, um, spoiled and plundered by the government for government programs, what actually happens is over generations, families are intended by God to become extremely wealthy. This is, this is by design. God intends for them to become multi-billion dollar corporations. We think, oh, that's, yeah, that's really nice. That's, no, no. No, that's, that's that's God's intention, right? Right. What we have right now is we have it's it's kind of interesting and, and funny and fun. To, well, and scary to watch. You know, Google and Apple and Amazon. Um, you know, uh, debating and arguing with our federal government. And they're all these big players because of how big they are and how powerful they are. Well, in, in what's happened is basically because our government and our culture has largely ceded the authority of the family, to the government and corporations. That's where it all went. It went to corporations. Corporations are basically the closest thing we have to an independent power authority separate from the government. But of course, it's not as good as a family because it's completely impersonal, and it's based on greed or money or power, maybe in good instances, um, you know, on the product. But that's not nearly the kind of um, glue that God intends to have in a believing, God-fearing family. We have, we've, we've completely lost sight of it. But God is, intends for families to accumulate wealth and authority and power and loyalty to one another and to Jesus over generations. In biblical societies, families ought to be like personal corporations, ordinarily accumulating great wealth and property, which is then used in turn for great charity, care for emergency needs, missions, elderly relatives, and the like. Right. Families are intended to do that. But instead, what do we do? Well, we just assume the government will do it or some, some rich CEO. Rather than thinking that this ought to be the ordinary uh, story of faithful families. Last thing here is that the sanctions of family government are disinheritance. The sanction of a a family government, what's the ultimate sanction? When kids are little, one sanction is spanking and so forth. But the ultimate ultimate sanction is disinheritance. But since many families do not think in terms of wealth and power over generations, under the blessing of God, those kind of sanctions are relatively meaningless. you are (laughs) disinherited from what? You can't come to family reunions anymore. Kind of a bummer. But that's not anything like if you were inheriting the family business. Now, are there ways to sin with all that? Of course. There are all kinds of ways to sin with that. Envy, pride, greed. Okay, yeah, all of that. But there's also great blessings there for us if we can see it. The church government. While we see the seed of the first church in the garden where Adam and Eve were invited to share fellowship with God at the tree of life, broadly, we may describe the jurisdiction of the government of the church as word and sacrament. The family is given the jurisdiction of health, welfare, and education. The church is given the jurisdiction of word and sacrament. This includes the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a great, well, it's a great, it's a great summary. It's a great summary of the jurisdiction of the church preaching the gospel to every creature, baptizing those who repent and welcoming them and their families to the worship of God and discipleship, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded in the Bible. The dignity and authority of the church was also, has has been massively abused in the past, and we can point to the high Middle Ages as the chief culprits there. When the Roman Catholic Church was at its height in the high Middle Ages, it was massively abused. Um, bloated. We do not want to return to that at all, but we absolutely do need to return to the rightful authority of God granted to the ministry of the word and sacrament. We, We should want to see the church return to a place in the public square, in culture of a place of respect. There was a time when national newspapers would print um, the minutes and major decisions of Presbyterian meetings. We just had a Presbytery meeting for a, a bunch of us in the, in the CREC here in Wenatchee, and I doubt that any of it's going to make it into the Wenatchee Daily News, whatever the equivalent is. Uh, I mean, we can hope. Um, we did try to do things, a few things that were a little you know, flamboyant, I think. They heard about it. Maybe we but I don't think it would be because they respected us so much. But there was a time in this country where the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, as it made decisions, it was imprinted in all the major newspapers. Why? Because the people cared. Even if it, even if you know a chunk of our our culture and our population was only nominally Christian, they still had respect for the office. They still had respect for the institution, and so we want to return to that. We should want to see ministers leading worship that is dignified, God-honoring, God-fearing, gospel-centered, instead of what it has descended into, the likes of late-night comedy hours, pop music concerts, self-esteem, and self-help pep talks, and so forth. The American War for Independence, for example, was called by King George III, who we revolted from, it was called the Presbyterian Revolt. <laughs> <You're> like, what? <laughs> yeah. Both because it was driven by an age-old Scots-Irish Covenanter skittishness for British overreach, but also because of the hundred-proof covenant theology that permeated the colonies. We do not recover a right role of church government by pastors being more bossy or loud, or necessarily through a lot more politics and sermons. Don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that the, that the church should become a, uh, some kind of activist group. Not at all. But the ministry of Jesus was so remarkable to the people of his time because the gospel writers say that he taught with authority, not like the scribes. And the authority of the apostles was remarkable because the Jews could tell that the disciples had been with Jesus, Acts 4.13. But what is the nature of this authoritative word? It is a covenantal authority. It is a covenantal authority. While we're not at all, we're not sacerdotalists, uh, no ministers, no church may summon up God, may call God down like some kind of genie, We do believe that by faith, God promises to be present where he has promised to be present. That's just holding God to his word. And that's one sense in which I mean the word covenant. When God promises to show up, we may believe him and trust him to show up because he's promised to. He's made covenant with us. And if he promises to show up, we can believe him for it. So, he promises to be present, where two or three people gather together in his name. Has he not promised? Yes, he has. In fact, he promised that in Matthew 18, and the particular context for that is church discipline. Right? When, when someone's in sin, and a, and a Christian confronts them, and then there's two or three witnesses called. And if, the, and if the sin is high-handed, and they still don't repent, it's told to the church. And if they still don't repent, and it's high-handed, let him be to you as a tax collector or a sinner. Put outside the fellowship Of the church. A return to gospel discipline in the church then must be part of that. Where the gospel is preached with clarity, lives really are changed, and the wisdom and authority of the church is justified by her children. In England, during the War for Independence, the Presbyterian pastors were derisively called the Black Robe Regiment in England. In England, they they mocked the leaders of the revolution. They called them, they, they referred to the Black Robe Regiment. Not because there was literally a regiment of soldiers in black robes, as cool as that might be, but because England was well aware that behind the fierce courage of the American colonists were thousands of Presbyterian preachers who often preached in black robes, preaching freedom in Christ alone. That was what drove it. There were it was there was this and and there's a number of historians that have done the, the detailed work that I'm not going to get into today. But they said there were thousands of Presbyterians throughout the colonies. These ministers were the ones preaching it, and the English referred to the black robe regiment for a reason. It's the black robe regiment. It's all these preachers frequently wearing black robes preaching freedom in Christ. But they didn't just say freedom in Christ and and ask Jesus into your heart and go home and have a nice day. No, they preached freedom in Christ alone. And because Christ was Lord, George III was not. Or better, he would, they would say, George Third has a Lord whom he must answer to. And as it happened, George III had made covenants, treaties, charters with all the colonies that guaranteed them certain rights as Englishmen. He had signed on a dotted line. And because of covenant theology, they looked at it and they said, George is breaking covenant. He's letting Parliament do stuff to us that, the, that our charter rights say they're not allowed to do. The whole tax, no taxation without representation thing was not because the colonists objected to taxes. The colonists had taxes in all their colonies. And in fact, at various points previously, the English Parliament had asked nicely of the colonies if they would be willing to tax the people at certain amounts. And they had to some degree or another. Not a problem. The problem came when the parliament just sent a tax bill directly over and said, you owe this. This would have been something like the equivalent of you guys over here in Wenatchee, Washington, getting a tax bill from the, the tax collector in Idaho. We decided that you owe us money. We've been doing a lot of good work over here in Idaho. Cough it up. But you you would rightly object and say, why? Because I I don't live there, and I don't have a representative in the Idaho state legislature. And we would object to the same thing if Washington State sent us taxes. So the, the, the issue had to do with breaking covenant. Had to do with breaking covenant. And these Presbyterian preachers preached that Christ was Lord, and him is freedom, and King George was breaking covenant. In fact, John Adams wrote that these pastors, speaking of these Presbyterian pastors, had, quote, affected a revolution in the hearts and minds of the people. John Adams credited Presbyterian pastors with the revolution. He says that they did this well before the actual war had even commenced. In fact, in the year before the Declaration of Independence was signed, in 1775, the Presbyterian General Assembly endorsed independence. The Presbyterian GA, General Assembly, in 1775 declared, we ought to be free. That's what it looks like to be the light of the world. But our assemblies, our modern church assemblies, are largely lusting after the approval of the world. And therefore, we're generally only trying to be more woke and more sexually confused than the world. The war for independence itself was led by many psalm-singing Presbyterians, many psalm-singing Presbyterian elders, ministers, and members. You might have heard the, the one anecdote that recalls the Presbyterian pastor, James Caldwell, who was helping with some battles. And when they ran out of paper for their musket wads, he told them to pull out their Isaac Watts Psalter hymnal and start ripping pages out, saying, Give them Watts, boys. I mean, that's how Presbyterian they were. They had psalters in their bags. ran out of paper? All right, just pull out your psalters, guys. This will have to do. The Prime Minister of England, Horace Walpole, said in Parliament during this time, quote, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. Apparently referring specifically to John Witherspoon, a Presbyterian minister, signer of the Declaration of Independence, and president of the Presbyterian College, which became known as Princeton. And when General Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, all but one of the American colonels, all but one of the American colonels was a Presbyterian elder. Jesus commissioned the church, not merely to preach and baptize, but to disciple the nations, to teach them everything he has commanded from Genesis to Revelation. We absolutely affirm the separation of church and state. We do, I do, you should. We do not want civil government run, run, by pastors and bishops. We don't want it run by the organized church. But by the same token, we deny the separation of God and state. We deny the separation of God and state. We also deny the separation of morality and state, and for that matter, the separation of gravity and state. We do not want to turn the church into a political activist interest group at all. But we absolutely have a duty to preach the entire word to the entire nation. And when the word is proclaimed fully and clearly, it will be a covenantal word. A word that insists that a nation can only be blessed with which acknowledges and submits to Jesus Christ. And if we will not submit to him, then it must also be told that we are in high rebellion to him and we are calling down his curses upon us and upon our children. Related is also the fact that the only kind of freedom there is is the kind that is ordered by God's word. It will either be the word of God or the word of man. And we're quickly reaching a crisis point in this land because the madness and insanity of the word of man is quickly becoming apparent. You want us to keep trusting your crazy ideas? There's a whole bunch of people who aren't even biblically literate Christians who are saying, wait a second. This this is what you want to do? This is what you want to do to my land? This is what you want to do to my business? You want us to keep trusting your ideas, the ones that are destroying this nation, burning down cities, churning civil unrest, and sending millions to an early grave through suicide, addiction, and mass incarceration, not even to mention the Holocaust of abortion? So yeah, We'll take the word of God every day of the week. Lastly, civil government. The assignment given to the civil government is the administration of criminal justice. The magistrate is given the sword to punish evildoers. And this means that God has entrusted civil government with a ministry of violence. We need to say it out loud. That's what God has entrusted the civil government with, a ministry of violence. In all the old paintings and statues, you know, Lady Justice is pictured as blind or blindfolded. Do a Google search later on. Just look up Lady Justice. She's always pictured as either her eyes are empty or she's got a blindfold over her eyes. She's always pictured as blind or blindfolded with a set of scales in one hand and a sword in the other. This pictures both the indiscriminate nature of justice. It applies equally to all. She can't see faces. Male, female, black, white, Hispanic, rich, poor, tall, short, it doesn't matter, old, young, it's all the same. It applies equally to all. And it also displays the basic job of the civil magistrate, which is to maintain balance or equity in the public square through the threat of and execution of judicial violence. That's her job. Maintain balance, equity, in the public square, through the threat of an execution of judicial violence. In the Old Testament, states and empires, the civil government, was frequently pictured as monsters and dragons. In the Old Testament, as you're reading through the Bible, frequently nations are, d- are pictured as monsters and dragons. Pharaoh is pictured in multiple places as a great river dragon coming out of the Nile. Incidentally, that's why um, the, the, the staff that... Moses throws down, it, it, it wasn't the little garter snake. The word that is actually used in the text is nachash, which is, I'm sorry, it's not nachash. That's the usual word for serpent. The word that is actually used is the same word. It's not, um, oh great, I'm gonna forget it now. But um, come to me tonight, night, I'm going to sleep. Um, tanim, there we go. Um, and it's the word in Genesis one that describes whales or dragons. Sea monsters. Now, maybe it was a baby sea monster. I don't know. But he throws his staff down. And there's a reason why when he throws it down and it turns into that sea monster, that dragon, Moses runs away from it. Right? And it devours the serpents that the other magicians are able to conjure up. Right? Why? Because Pharaoh is a sea dragon. And the point is not, the magic, the real trick is actually not throwing the staff down. Although we think that's pretty cool. The real trick is God telling him, go pick it up. Why? Because God intends to do that with Pharaoh. God is telling Pharaoh, you are a stick in my hand, you sea dragon. I rule the nations of the earth. Right? But they're pictured all through the Old Testament as monsters, dragons. Daniel saw empires coming out of the sea like what? Huge monsters with lots of teeth and spikes. Revelation pictures the Roman Empire the same way. The job of the civil magistrate is to threaten violence for crimes and then execute justice speedily when due process convicts true criminals. This is all why you should not want civil government running your health care, education, or welfare. Okay? Civil ma- magistrate is a monster. Civil magistrate is a blind lady with a sword. You want her doing your surgeries? Right? You want us you want her teaching your kids? Right? No, what will happen? Well, exactly what's happening right now. We gave education over to the government and now what are they doing? They're teaching children to mutilate their bodies. Because that's the only thing I mean the civil magistrate just has a sword. The civil magistrate is a monster. And on a careful leash and limited, it's a good thing. It's a blessing. But when you let it go and say, "Hey, you should take care of grandma." you better believe you will get grandma dying. That's what will happen because what? That's all civil magistrate does. That's what the authority is given for. This is why the founding fathers understood that the civil government must be highly limited, why it must be bound fast with many chains. That was the idea things have gotten a little unchained. Whatever you give to the civil government to do, always has a threat of violence on the other end of it no matter how nice the letterhead reads you just need to think that this is the ministry of violence do we want the ministry of violence doing this 99% of the time you're going to say no stop it no do we want them to kill evil doers yes right one of the central distinctions that biblically minded people must return to is the difference also in this between sins and crimes This is a biblical distinction that we need to get our heads and hearts around, the difference between sins and crimes. In a biblically informed republic, all crimes would be sins because they would be based on God's word. You'd be disobeying the civil magistrate and it came from God's word, so you'd be disobeying God, it would be a sin also. But not all sins should be crimes. Not all sins should be crimes. And the basic distinction is based on whose jurisdiction the matter falls under. A child who disobeys her parents, for example, by lying, has sinned. But she has not yet committed a crime. You don't call 911 when, you're, when your seven-year-old daughter lies to you. At least not yet. Right? The, um, you're probably going to be required to by law here in a few minutes. Right? Um, there's a sin that's occurred. Confession of sin must be made to the parents and God and restitution and so forth. But there's no crime. It's a, it's a family government issue. It's not yet a civil government issue. So when I talk about the distinction between sins and crimes, we're talking about jurisdictional issues. A sin falls under the jurisdiction of individual, family, or church. And sometimes there's overlap. Sometimes there's a, a completely, you know, evil thought that flits into your head and you just confess it to God and it's gone. That was an individual government taking care of it. Maybe it's a family related thing and maybe it gets a little bit out of hand and the sin needs to be dealt with and the church is involved, back to Matthew 18 again, right? That would be, that's sin and depending on the nature of it, it's their jurisdiction. Crime is the jurisdiction of the civil magistrate where punishment of some sort or restitution is required. In fact, one of the revolutionary requirements of Old Testament law was the prohibition of parents Taking criminal penalties into their own hands. This is in Deuteronomy 21, and everybody always freaks about freaks out because you have parents who bring their, their completely rebellious son to the, to the judges of the city, and it's it's mentioned that a possible penalty would be the death penalty. And everybody freaks out: death penalty for a rebellious son. Like people. Um, well, okay, I can't, I'm out of time. I can't I can't get, just don't let me get distracted. Talk about that more later but the really revolutionary thing in this the really revolutionary thing in this which you don't understand about the pagan world is god prohibiting parents from from doing civil penalties on their own kids that's actually revolutionary in the ancient world dads could do whatever they wanted with anybody in their household including execution that's common in the ancient world what god is actually doing is limiting that saying you're a different jurisdiction if you have that big of a deal, big a problem with your kid, you gotta bring him, you gotta bring him to court. And the judges will inquire diligently. And just maybe, 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 they might decide that the death penalty would be just in this situation. According to God's word, another example, drunkenness is a sin. But it is not, and it should not be a crime. It is a sin, it's not a crime. While there was some overlap, still some overlap between a church and state in the Old Testament. What many fail to recognize though, is that the Old Testament law was a massive move toward separation of jurisdictions. You see crimes specifically recognized by the civil penalties required. And and basically, so as you're reading through the Old Testament, if you have a requirement for restitution or uh, some kind of um, exile or death penalty, that's basically what you're looking for, there's a crime. It's something that falls under the jurisdiction of the magistrate. The most basic principle of civil justice is the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. While many misunderstand the teaching of Jesus on this matter, the foundational point of this standard was to limit personal vengeance. The point of it was actually to limit personal vengeance. It was to limit family feuds and vigilante justice. The instinct of man is never to think to yourself, oh, she hit me in the eye. I want to make sure that I don't hit any harder than she did. No, right? The the fleshly instinct of every man is to take a head for an eye. Right? You took took my tooth? I'm going to take off your head. But God insisted that individuals must personally love their enemies and leave room for God's wrath. Romans 12. That if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Keep burning coals on his head, but leave room for God's wrath. And then you should not stop reading at that verse. Read right into Romans 13. The minister of God's wrath is what? Magistrate. Right? So a good Christian businessman can forgive his employee, give him a coke, and call the cops. Right? A good Christian businessman who finds his, his worker embezzling money from him, for example. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry, so sorry. I was stealing money from you. Oh, well, I'm so, please forgive me. Oh, I do forgive. Here, you want something to drink? There you go. All right, sit right there. I'm going to call the cops. That's Romans 12 and Romans 13, right next to each other. No contradiction. there. Love your enemy, do them good, and call the cops. Jesus is Lord, means that he is Lord of all lords, King of all kings. He is the author of all authority. There's no power except from him. And this means in the first instance that we must learn to ask whether the power being exercised is obedient to Jesus or not. Family government is responsible for providing health, welfare, and education to the members of the household, and then as God blesses those in need around them. The church is charged with preaching the whole counsel of God to the whole world, administering the sacraments, and guarding the worship of God. The church is the light of the world, and as the church goes, so goes the world. This is not only in the central regeneration of the human hearts, but it also extends to teaching nations what is just and how powers are to be separated, how power must be limited, and how God interacts with families and nations by covenant. All that must be taught by the church to the nation. And finally, the civil government's job is to punish criminals and praise the righteous. The only way to correct the civic wobble, see how I worked that in there right at the end, okay? The only way to correct the civic wobble, the only way we'll return to biblical limited civil government is through families and churches returning to their assigned tasks in obedience and faith with individuals practicing self-government by the power of the Holy Spirit in every sphere. And the thing to remember is that what our current culture is attempting to do is to actually unmake God's world. They are hoping to overwhelm God by sheer momentum But this is no different than the first tower of Babel. And God still must come down to see what all the fuss is about. And he who sits in heaven laughs. He has set Christ as king and he is risen from the dead. And they cannot put him back in the grave. So we have Christ and he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. But we also have God's created world on our side. This is what families and churches are for. What we're talking about is what they were invented for, what they were made for. When we do what we are for, we cut with the grain. We have reality on our side. We have gravity on our side. So confess your sins, get clean, get back in fellowship, and get to work. We have our work cut out for us, but we were made for this. We were made for this moment, and amen. Hi, I'm Robert Borton, CEO of Classical Conversations, the world's largest classical Christian homeschooling community. I'm launching a new podcast, Refining Rhetoric. If you like cross-politics or just listen to hear what crazy stuff they're saying today, you will enjoy Refining Rhetoric. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform. I practice the 15 tools of learning by interviewing great guests, looking at current events, and talking about cryptocurrency